Hey, if you got a Bible, Nehemiah chapter 2 is where we are today. We are in week 3 of a study through Nehemiah that's probably going to take us through the fall all the way through December or up to about mid-December. And uh, I know that you, you may have not been here for the last couple of weeks. If you weren't, then uh, I really encourage you to pick up the messages. I think we have CD copies in the foyer. If not, everything's online with notes. And uh, it would really be helpful if you didn't uh, catch those first two messages to catch those because there's a lot of background on where we are in Nehemiah. Uh, but uh, for those of you that aren't, uh, familiar with those first two weeks. I'll, I'll catch up here in just a second. But before we do that, um, I'm going to pray and then we'll crank it up. Hey, you know, uh, but before I do that, let me just say I, I was driving out here this morning and those trees that overhang River Road, you know, isn't that just a beautiful little stretch of road? And then um, I was here just people buzzing and stuff happening. I'm in the back and those guys are singing that song and I was kind of, you know, doing my no rhythm dancing back there. And I just, um, I just wanted to say, I am so thankful to be here doing this with you. I just can't imagine. I mean, I get paid to do this, and, and I just can't believe that God has shown me the mercy to be able to just preach the word to you and talk about Jesus to you and do life together with you and build a church together with you. It's just, I, I can't, <laughs> it can be at times sort of overwhelming in, in thankfulness, and so I'm just I'm so glad that I'm here, that I wandered through Fort Benning 15 years ago with no hair and one eyebrow. And um, as before, I realized you could trim the, the middle section there and, um, and, uh, and met this girl. And she, she, I mean, I fell in love with her and then got out of the Army a few years later and settled back here. And, and um, I just can't believe that, that I'm just here preaching the Scriptures I just, wow, I'm so thankful. Well, let's pray, Lord, as we open up your Bible, as we sing to you, how it can become, it can become sort of regular and mundane, but revive our hearts today and stir in us as we've sung just a yearning and a passion for you, a simplicity. Lord, our lives are very complex. We live in a very fast-paced culture where we are stretched a mile wide and our, oftentimes our lives are an inch deep. And so, God, would you give us the uncommon kind grace to settle down for an hour and a half or two on Sunday mornings and look into this book that contains a very old story about this man named Nehemiah who is on a mission for you like we are on a mission for you. And ultimately this book was written you know, thousands of years ago. But Jesus says about the Old Testament that we're reading out of today that it testifies about him. And so help us see Jesus in this text and help us see our own lives and our own circumstance in this text. And, and uh, give me clarity and give us ears to hear and hearts to listen and then move us forward in the gospel in the kingdom as a church and as people is there anybody in this room that doesn't know you as their savior lord would you would you miraculously bring them back to life quicken their hearts to hear the message of the gospel and for the rest of us that may already know you would you encourage us and would you unify us even more tightly around the mission that you've called us to 
to give our lives to as a church. Help us now as we study your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just a little background for, uh, again, by way of summary. What's happened is, and this is just basically the Old Testament in about a minute, is that God has created everything that is. He's the great creator. He created good, not just good, but very good. And the pinnacle and the prize of his creation is humankind, mankind, that's us. And we chose to rebel against God and all his greatness and goodness. And that rebellion brought certain consequences. That sin brought forth a separation from God and death. And so then humanity continues to fill the earth and as a response, not because he was surprised by it, but in his infinite uh, plan, God had planned for a response to our rebellion. And he chose a man named Abram who would eventually become Abraham out of all the peoples of the earth, not because Abraham was more intelligent or better looking or you know, had a better 40-yard dash time or could bench press you know, 300 pounds or anything like that. He chose Abraham and this people that he would call the Jewish nation because God delights in glorifying himself by choosing what is weak to show his power through. And so he chooses this poor sap named Abraham, calls him out and forms a nation through this man, and he promises him and his people three things. He promises them offspring. He promises them a land, a piece of dirt on the earth. And he promises to bless them. And so Abraham and his descendants become this Hebrew nation, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. And they go through the Old Testament, a series of books and stories where they are in favor with God because they're walking with him. And then they rebel against him. And that brings certain consequences. And eventually God gives them a king named David who who has this God-ordained vision to establish this holy city of Jerusalem, which becomes this all-important place on the earth where God promises his people that he will be with them in this city and that in the temple that they build in this city, he will tabernacle in this place. And from this place, he will make his name great to all the people on the earth because this city and this temple and God's presence that rested there was not just for this small little group of people, but it was for all the people, but God chose these weak, insignificant people through which he would bless all the peoples of the earth. Well, they build that temple, and because of their disobedience, eventually they get taken over by a pagan empire called the Babylonians. And in 586 B.C., this wicked king with a cool name, I always kind of liked it, but he, is, he was wicked. His name is Nebuchadnezzar. Say that ten times fast. King Nebuchadnezzar overthrows the Jewish people, drags some of the best young Hebrews off to be his slaves. We read about that in the book of Daniel. And he destroys this city of God. He destroys the temple in Jerusalem, seemingly thwarting God's plans to tabernacle with his people. And so Jerusalem, the city, the all-important city of God, and the temple and its walls around it lay in waste. And 141 years went by, and that king had died, and God raised up another pagan king named Cyrus to now take over captivity over the Jewish nation. But this particular pagan king is favorable to the Jews, and he allows the Jews to go back to their city and rebuild this all-important city. And then he dies, and a guy named Xerxes comes in power, and Xerxes dies, and then a man named Artaxerxes comes in power. And God moves upon the heart of these pagan Gentile kings to continue this edict of Cyrus 
to let God's people go back and rebuild the city of God and the temple of God and the walls of God. So 141 years after it's been destroyed, God moves upon the heart of some men, Ezra and Zerubbabel, and they rebuild the temple. And now a few years after that, he's moved upon the heart of a man named Nehemiah, who, by the way, is still in captivity. He moves upon his heart to go back to Jerusalem, to the city that is still in progress, broken down walls, in ruins, to build the city and rebuild the wall. And so Nehemiah, as we read the last few weeks, has the courage and the burden that God moves upon his heart. And he asks a potentially hostile king, Artaxerxes, for favor to go back to Jerusalem. And he asks him for, to, re, to absolutely reverse his previous diplomatic policy. He asks him for open credit at 84 lumber. In other words, he asks him for all the, all the supplies for the, for the wall and his own house. And he asks him um, to send some guys with him to protect him from the crazy people in the forest. And Artaxerxes gives him all that he asks. And Nehemiah now we read in chapter 2, we're going to pick up at verse 9, is on that mission. And his mission is to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, in particular its walls. So Nehemiah is on a mission, and we're going to talk about the correlation for us as a group of people and as individuals, the mission that we're on today. So let's pick it up and read in verse chapter 2, verse 9. And this is out of Nehemiah's journal, basically. This is Nehemiah writing. He says, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. King Artaxerxes had given him, you know, free pass, diplomatic immunity. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. Let me just pause there and say the first thing that kind of jumps out to me here is that Nehemiah had a burden. We talked a lot about the burden that Nehemiah had. God moved upon him to have this burden that he needed to go and rebuild Jerusalem. But it's one thing to have a burden and talk about it. And, you know, just kind of, you know, with your friends, talk about how, yeah, I wish this was better. I wish that was better. It's another thing to actually go do it. Nehemiah was a, albeit he was a captive in this foreign city, but he had a pretty good life. I mean, he was living in the palace, testing the wine. And uh, now that was a bit dangerous because people tried to kill the king by, you know, poisoning his wine. But he was still alive. So every now and again, he was getting to sip on some pretty good vino. I mean, probably, you know, he was in the palace, right? Wine testing. And, and so he's got a pretty good life. And so it, it, it just kind of reminds me that it's, it's you know, as we're living in a less than ideal circumstance, but we kind of know who we are, we're Christians, and all those things are kind of not the way they should be. It's one thing to kind of wish that things would be different. And it's a whole other thing to actually have the oomph to go. Like I, I discovered something about myself this past week. Um, everybody knows about Cecil Cheeves' just crazy adventure last week, right? Where he, he ran 60 miles and he, he biked 60 miles and then he, he, he swam 60 laps. You know what I thought about? I was looking at the pictures that he was putting on Facebook, and, I, and I, was, I was looking at some of Reynolds' pictures. I realized that I like the idea of getting into shape better than I actually like getting into shape. You know what I mean? And I was sort of thinking, I was like fantasizing about, yeah, man, what if, 
What if I got to the point where I could run 60 miles when I was 60 years old? And I don't know if you caught the article in the newspaper, but Reynolds, I think, was quoted in there. And he said, yeah, when Cecil turns 70, we're going to act like we don't know him in case he has some crazy plan to run 70 miles. But, but I just, you know, don't you like, like the idea of, of, you know, it's kind of like camping. I like the idea of camping more than I actually like to camp. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> and so the, the, he, Nehemiah, he doesn't just have this idea, but like I, I realize how much smack I talk all the time about what I'm going to do. But Nehemiah doesn't just wish about it. He actually leaves the palace and goes. He leaves the vineyard. He leaves the, 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 the nice existence and the stakes and, and air conditioning, and he goes. And he knows that it's going to be hard. And we're going to read here he faces opposition by some, some crazy people. Being on mission, like it forces discomfort. It brings this, it's just going to bring, it's going to be hard. It's going when things aren't as they should be and you, you move towards making them as they should be, whether it be in your family or your church and your company or whatever. It's just, it's not lollipops and butterflies. And I love that. Nehemiah went. Verse 10, but when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Isn't that interesting? It displeased them greatly that somebody had come to seek the welfare of Israel. You know, there's just, just a simple little point here is that, is that whenever you're on mission and you've clarified what you're all about and you know who you are and you know where you're going and you know what you're doing, it will be opposed. It will be opposed. There are people that just, because maybe of their own insecurity or just because of spiritual warfare, just hate people that are sticking it in the ground for God and clarifying who they are and what they believe. It brings opposition. People that have a burden, people that are on a mission, if you are a leader and you've got a vision, it will be opposed. People... Look, this is just a, a fact of life. It, and in this particular instance, I mean, this is just, this, we see this strain through history. People hate, people, the world hates God's people. The world hates God's people. I was just talking to somebody just a second ago uh, before church started. And he's got some high school friends and, and they're wandering off into all sorts of other religions. And he was just talking about how in his interactions with them, he just talks about Jesus a little bit. And it's just fierce opposition. And we see that a little bit in our culture. I mean, you talk about all sorts of crazy Eastern religions, but the moment you stick it in the ground and say, I believe in Jesus, it seems to, it seems to bring like the backup in some people. Why is that? That should, that should, in a sense, encourage us because we realize that there are spiritual forces of wickedness against the truth. The reason why Christianity is so opposed is because it's not just another religion. Now, there's the truth, and the enemy wants to refute and destroy the truth. If you're on mission... If you're a young man and you're, you're making decisions about how you're going to live morally and how you're going to date and how you're not going to get drunk and wake up in the back of an El Camino on Saturday morning and you're going to stick to the books and you're going to do your thing. Or if you're a young lady and you, and you make a decision that you're going to do it the right way, look, it, it will bring ostracization. I, don't know, I think I'm making up a word, but you know what I'm talking about. It will bring – I've got to figure that one out. It will, you will be ostracized. It will bring opposition. It will. It just will. There will be haters out there. They're just, they're just people hate. People love to hate. And there's a myriad of reasons why they do. Maybe they're insecure. Maybe they're, they're being influenced by, you know, 
by by some demonic force. Maybe they're just maybe they're just they just got bad attitudes. But uh, if we're on mission as a church, and if you're on mission as a person, it will displease some people greatly. Whether that be family or friends or acquaintances, it just it ruffles feathers. Verse eleven. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Let me just pause here and say, and I don't want to over-spiritualize the text. I think this is just Nehemiah's journal entry, but what jumped out to me here is that Nehemiah has this great burden. And, I mean, God has moved on his heart. And he basically, for three months before he even went to the king, he cried and prayed And then he went to the king and asked this very difficult question. And the king grants him all that he asked. Can you imagine just how his mind probably on the horse ride there is just, I mean, his his mind is racing with all that needs to be done. And he's never actually seen Jerusalem, this city of his forefathers. He's there now. And the first thing that he does when he gets to the city is he takes a three-day weekend. (laughs) I mean... That is so anti-American, isn't it? Get to work. But he rests. Look, if you're on a mission and you know that God has called you to do something, like it, it requires that we, we take time to give ourselves a Sabbath rest. I mean, we've got to rest. We're some of the busiest, overstretched, frazzled people in probably the history of civilization. And I think part of the problem that some of us is that we don't eat well, we don't sleep well, and we don't rest well. And that absolutely cuts us off from being as effective as we can possibly be. I can feel it in my own life. Like if I, don't, if I haven't gotten a proper amount of rest and I haven't just sort of drawn away to just clarify my thoughts and spend time with God and just kind of be alone in His presence, then I, I, get, I get anxious, I get nervous, I get, my mouth gets ahead of me and I say silly things when I preach that after I say them I look at my wife and she goes, oh... <laughs> Why did, I mean, when I kind of get outside of the pattern that God wants me in as, as to have rest and rely on Him, I do goofy, silly, um, short-sighted things. And so it just, I don't know what rest looks like in your life. Maybe it's unrealistic for you to take a whole day off. But maybe within your day, you may look for opportunities to get away for 15 minutes, 30 minutes, and just center your mind back on God. Maybe if you're a couple and you've got three or four kids and life is going every which way but loose, maybe one of the most powerful spiritual things you can do is sit down as a couple this afternoon and this evening and look each other in the eyes and say, how can I bless you and serve you to give you a Sabbath rest within a day for you? And what that might look like is is that if you're a, if you're a dad that works and your mom um, spends most of the time, the, the mother spends most of the time with the kids, maybe dad, when you come home, you, you take those kids away out in the yard and you just let her unwind for 30 minutes or an hour or whatever so that she can just kind of exhale. And maybe then that's a trade-off there. Maybe the dad gets home and he's, he's, he's frazzled because he's a man of great responsibility and he's like kinked up. And maybe maybe you just strategically... Serve your husband by letting him kind of unwind and take a Sabbath rest. Or, or maybe you're at work, you're a single guy, and you're just geeked up. You know that feeling? And you know, you, instead of going and scanning the Internet for the um, latest results for recruiting for you know, your school, you kind of take that time to stretch out your neck and, and exhale and pray and just Sabbath rest within the day. 
I, 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 even as I'm saying this, I'm amazingly convicted because I'm terrible at this. I always got to be doing something. Now, I'm not talking about Sabbath rest isn't like you're just laying out doing nothing. Rest for you may be going and golfing or going and running or going and uh, doing something, but just a place where you can connect with God. And I am just so amazed and impressed that Nehemiah, even though he had this amazing task that would take 12 years to get this city back in order, the first thing is he does is he declares Labor Day a three-day weekend. <laughs> and he rests and he worships God and he, un- he gets his head straight. Verse 10, or verse 11. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, And I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. I love this because Nehemiah doesn't talk smack before he actually does anything. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by the night. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. It doesn't mean what it means to us in English. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem. Can you imagine that being the place that you come in and out? I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Now think about what's going on. Let's get in the moment here. Let's, let's, let's try and put ourselves in Nehemiah's shoes. He is a Jewish young man. And he has, he has never actually been to Jerusalem. But this is part of his heritage, right? This is, this is where all his ancestors are from. And certainly in, in worship and in discussions with family, fathers and grandfathers and uncles and aunts and moms and grandmas... He's heard about the great city of Jerusalem and and Solomon's temple and all of its splendor and how that's what God had moved upon these people. And he's heard the story of how God rescued his people from Egyptian captivity and opened up the seas for Moses and the people to walk through. And he's heard about how Joshua took the people beyond the Jordan River. And he's heard about how, how loaves of bread were falling from the sky and how quail were like falling over and saying, cook me. And he's heard, he's heard about all these things that God has done, and then he gets this report that says that all of that is, is possibly ruined unless you go back and rebuild this place, and he gets there, and can you imagine the heartbreak and the anguish and the, just the, 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 the pain inside of him as he sees this? It's, it's, it's maybe even worse than he imagined. It's destroyed by, by fire. In verse 14, Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, But there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. I mean, this place was so full of rubble that the little donkey or horse that he was riding couldn't even get through some of the little crevices in this broken down city. Then I went up to went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall. And I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. Verse 16. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. So he's kind of holding his tongue. He's not just going out there and just saying, hey, let's go do this. He's figuring out. He's taking time to inspect his situation. He's getting smart about what his circumstance is before he just goes and you know, throws spaghetti up against the wall to see what sticks. He, he is strategic in his mission as he seeks to order his life. He's figuring out, like, what is it? I mean, if you're, if you're, if you're, finances are out of order maybe you need to sit down and kind of look what's coming in and going out if your if your world is crumbling maybe you need to and, and i find that's very hard when, when when you know things are kind of not the way they should be because if you're a man like me um men tend to like want to deny reality right you know why men don't go to the doctor 
Because, I mean, they would rather not know that they've got cancer forming in their colon than actually go to the doctor and figure it out. Right? And so we just, we do the very helpful strategy of sticking our head in the sand. And that works every time, doesn't it? It just works. Things always get better when you ignore them. I mean, I just, I love the courage of Nehemiah to really face reality. I am terrible at that. (laughs) And if you're a man, you probably are too. And maybe you are too, women, but I've never been a woman. So, I don't know. I mean, are we bad? We just... Ah, just ignore it. Never gets better. <laughs> it just doesn't. Okay, verse 17. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. He begins to communicate the need. He begins to articulate his mission and vision. He says, Hey, this is, this is the way things are, and it should not be like this. Next verse, or next sentence. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. Verse 18. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good of the work. With Nehemiah's vision, the burden that Nehemiah had wasn't just his own little thing that he, that he cooked up in his own soul. He said, God has told me to do this. In fact, he is, it has been confirmed because he gave me favor with a, with a pagan king who, who had just years earlier said that nobody could go back and build Jerusalem in Ezra chapter 4. Now he's reversed his foreign policy. He's given me open credit at 84 Lumber. He gave me letters of diplomatic immunity, and he gave me the funds to build not only the wall and my house, but God. I'm not appealing to just favorable circumstances. God has told me, people, that this is what we're supposed to do. And they strengthened their hands for the good work but opposition comes again i mean if you're on a mission for god you're doing something right it will be opposed not just once not just twice but over and over and over again in chapter two this is just the beginning of opposition but we see it again in chapter four and again in chapter six and then again later on in the book these cats continue to hound him verse 19 but when, in fact, they bring a buddy here. Check this out. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the, Abba, the Ammonite servant and this other guy named Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, now listen to this. This is really interesting. They said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Now, they knew that he wasn't rebelling against the king because these two guys, Sanballat, and, and what's the second guy's name? Tobiah were the same guys that in verse 10 he gave the letters to. I mean, he's, he's trucking through the forest and he's hauling in a deuce and a half, a whole bunch of lumber. And he's got a note from the king saying, let Nehemiah go to rebuild the city. And they're like, oh, well, they're grumbling, but at least they've got to let him go because he's got the king's horsemen with him. And so they let him go. So they know what the deal is. They know that he's not, he's not going against the king. They know that he's got the right to do this. But now when he's in front of his people, they try and discredit him publicly by questioning his motive. I mean, come on, they're hating again, but this time they're trying to impugn his motive. I guess one, I tell you, one thing that is very difficult when you face opposition is when, when people talk about, they, get, like they question your heart and your motivation and something. Isn't that a little bit more, like that cuts to the heart a little bit more? It's one thing if you just think, I'm jacked up. But it's another thing if you think I'm deceptively trying to, you know, mess things up. 
And, and, and these guys now publicly try and undercut Nehemiah by questioning his motive, even though they knew that what their charge against him wasn't right because they saw the letter earlier. Are you rebelling against the king? In verse 20, one of the great sentences in Nehemiah, because he's on mission and because he understands what God has called him to do, Nehemiah says, then I replied to them in verse 20, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. In the midst of opposition and the first challenge of his mission, Nehemiah sticks to his mission. This is burden that God moved on his heart months before was bigger than the opposition that he faced in that moment. So a couple little points of summary, then three questions for you, and we'll respond to God in worship and prayer and, and however we respond. Number one, just to summarize, bring, being on mission brings discomfort. Like we get sold a bill of goods in America that like blessing equals ease and comfort. And, and I'm not saying God doesn't want to bless us, but I do find that the majority of the men and women that do great things in the scriptures go through tremendous trial, tremendous trial. So being on mission, look, if, you're, if we're a church trying to preach the gospel and clarify what the gospel is in a religious but lost, mostly lost city and area, it will, it will be hard. If you're a young man or a young woman or a family or you're an older guy or an older woman and you're trying to repair some broken down walls in your life, like the thought of getting your life in order and the actual doing of your life in order, bringing your life back into order is two different things. and it, It's hard. It brings discomfort. Secondly, is that being on mission brings opposition. Like this is, it is hard. You will be opposed. There are spiritual forces of wickedness that are against God and his people and his truth. I'm not saying that to psych you out. We're going to talk a little bit more about spiritual warfare in the coming weeks as we look at Nehemiah 4 and Nehemiah 6. But I want to just throw this out there. A great writer named C.S. Lewis, great English writer, Chronicles of Narnia, the whole deal, mere Christianity. He said about spiritual warfare is we make a mistake when we think too little about it, and we make a mistake when we think too much about it. And I think there's a, a zone in there where we need to realize that there is an enemy that is against us. First Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says that the enemy prowls about like a lion, seeking whom he may devour. If you live your life as a cultural Christian and never understand the reality that there is an enemy called Satan with demons and devils that are trying to destroy you and rob you and divert you and get you off of mission, you are naive. Now, in our culture, we need to be wise. As Paul says to the Corinthians, he says that, he says that oftentimes the devil will come as an angel of light. So in Nehemiah's time or in Jesus' time or in Paul's time, the enemy may have tried to oppose them with some, you know, demonically possessed crazy man bound by chains but in our culture maybe the devil and spiritual warfare doesn't present itself that way it presents itself deceptively with comfort and pleasure and and, and trying to draw our hearts away from and i'm not saying god is opposed to comfort or pleasure i'm saying that that we live in a modern day babylon where we are in spiritual captivity and the challenge for us is to never actually leave the palace because we think the palace is home. And so we're comfortable with it, and we're just used to everything being kind of cool. And that lulls us to sleep. That's the fight most of us are in. And God wants to move our hearts to realize that there's something bigger going on here than just us having 
um, an easy life. Being on mission brings opposition. Third, being on mission, we talked about Nehemiah calling a three-day weekend. It requires rest. It requires rest. Jesus, over and over again in the Gospels, especially it's, it stands out in the book of Mark, that he would draw away. He would heal a whole town, then he'd go away. People would be pressing at the doors, and Jesus would say no to some people. Even Jesus, in his, in his, during his years here on this earth, incarnated in human form, had to draw away. How arrogant it is of us to think that we don't need rest. You know the Ten Commandments? Like we, we, we take the ones like don't murder, we take that pretty literally, you know, don't steal, don't, don't commit adultery, don't covet, don't take the name of your, don't, no idolatry. But the thing about, you know, observe the Sabbath, like, ah, whatever. Nine out of ten isn't bad. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that's, like, that's a commandment. That's not just a tip for helpful living. Like God, you know, so, some of us, if we don't, we're so busy and we don't observe rest and observe giving our heart. And we, I'm not saying that that's a, I'm not saying it's Saturday. I'm not in this little, you know, technical game about you've got to take Saturday. I'm talking about the principle of Sabbath rest and drawing your heart away. Some of us, if we don't observe that, God may just knock us down so that we have to rest. Um, he's done that before. He can do it again. Verse 4, being on mission forces us to draw battle lines. Nehemiah drew battle lines. He, put, he drew a line in the sand. He didn't just talk about it. He actually went. He got the letters from the king. He got authorization. He went. He saw the deal. And at some point, he stood up in front of people who probably didn't see it like he did, who needed to be convinced, who were his own people. And he said, this is who I am. This is who we are. This is what we have to do. And that will bring a thousand different opinions. But at some point in his life, he had to say, this is what I'm about. He drew battle lines and being on mission forces us to do that. Three quick questions and then we'll respond. Number one, what's our mission as a church? What's our mission as a church? Nehemiah was a man on mission. We are a people on a mission. That's the name of the series, Nehemiah, a people on mission. I'm not good at cute little slogans or things that fit on stationery or, or websites. But we've got three purposes here at this church. One is to worship God, to, to collectively as created beings, to give glory and honor to God as we gather, as we live, to create a culture and a community of people that see their life as a response to God, to worship God. Reynolds read Psalm 48. How beautiful. I mean, everything. Like, like did, you, did you catch all the descriptions? Like, like the, the, the horses and the lions and the, and the little creepy crawly things, the, the cockroaches and, and everything, the biggest mountain and the lowest lake and, the, and the, the, the most powerful king and the most humble servant. Everything on this earth was created to worship God. And, and so our purpose as a church is to gather and to let our lives collectively and individually give a fragrance and aroma of Christ to worship Him. Secondly, our mission as a church is to live as a community, to edify one another, to build one another up, to serve one another, to be the body of Christ to one another, to teach one another, to admonish one another, to confess to one another, to rebuke one another, to exhort, to live as a city of God within a greater city called culture, called our city, so that our city becomes a fragrance, an aroma of Christ. So, so the second purpose is living as a community in an edifying way for Jesus so that, we, so that we smell like Jesus to the rest of the people around us. And then the third purpose of the church, first is worship, second is edification as a community of God, and the third is then to, to evangelize those who are not part of the city. And that, I mean, look, we get scared when we hear that word, you know, 
like leaving a track on the urinal at the restaurant or something, or you know, getting on a soapbox and you know, Broadway when all the soldiers are stumbling out of the bars drunk. I mean, yeah, that's that's certainly evangelism. I'm all for that. But for most of us, it's just just living together as a group of people, living as a city within a city, and from us collectively and us individually as our lives start to take on the aroma of Christ, we begin to be attractive to those that need Jesus. And we begin to increase the city of God within the city that we live in, that we're building for his glory. So the second question I have for you real quick is, what is your mission as a follower of Jesus that is part of a church, whether it be this church or some other church? He's called you as an individual, to be part of the city that we're building within a city. What's your mission? I mean, do you have a place? Do you know? I mean, it might do some of us real good to write down a mission statement on our life. This is what I'm, especially if you're, young, if you're a young man or a young woman. Figure out where you want to be in five years. Where do you want to be when you're 25? Where do you want to be when you're 30? Like, what, what, where am I going? What am I doing? Where are we going as a church? We talked a whole lot about it last week. If you didn't pick up the message last week, talk about our plan. We mentioned four or five things that we need to really do as a church. I won't reiterate those, but pick up that message. Look at the notes online. What's our mission? What's your mission? Have you figured that out? Or are you just waiting? Are you just living college football season to college football season so you can tailgate and eat some brats and and drink a beer and, and get mad because your team doesn't win? Before you know it, you wake up and you're 40. And then before you know it, you wake up and you're 60. And your life has been a series of mild disappointments. Because you never really figured out who you are and what you were put on this earth for. Don't live like that. And if you are 55 or 60 and you feel that in your soul, realize that this is the good grace of God right now to prick your heart and say, come on, there's still time. Get in the game. Get in the game. Come on, we need you. We need you. We need you to do more than golf and fish. We need you to do more than just kind of hang out and, and complain about how the younger generation is jacked up. Guess what? That's what they were saying about you when you were a kid. So come on, come on, get in the game, get in the game. And I love that we have, I mean, when Jennifer and I started this church, it was me and Jennifer and the, and the, and the Coxes and maybe the, the Edwardses, and we were like the only adults. And then it was a bunch of kids who didn't know whether to buy smoothies or Starbucks. And they didn't have any jobs. But now some people like with... Like that we're over the age of 18 started showing up, and I love that. I love that. But I love how there's some people getting in the game here. What's your mission as a follower of Jesus that is part of a church? And finally, have you drawn your battle line? Have you drawn your battle line? Have you said, this is who I am, and this is what I'm about? Earlier on in the story of the Old Testament, when God moves on the leader of this young moves on the heart of this young leader named Joshua and he brings the people across the river back into the promised land. Now we're several hundred years past that. They've already messed it up and been taken out again. But he gets on the far side of that river and he says, okay, folks, this is what we're doing. This is our mission to build this land that God has given us. And he says in Joshua chapter 24, verse 15, he says, challenges the people. And he says, If it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. 
but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. What's the correlation in our day? Will we just kind of be sort of, you know, half engaged, half there people, or will we stick it in the ground as individuals and as a church and say, this is who we are. This is what we're about. Let's go. Let's go. Let his people strengthen their hands and rise up and serve the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the amazing example of Nehemiah. I'm so amazed at his courage, his resolve, and his passion for your purposes. I'm also encouraged that he he modeled for us how we should face opposition. I think the simple answer to that is that he his burden was heavier than his opposition. He understood his mission and he let that anchor sink deeper than his critics. God, would you give us the special grace to do that, to clarify what our mission is as a Christian here in the Chattahoochee Valley in 2009 is? What are we, what are we doing? What are we doing? God, would you use maybe my feeble words to tap the shoulder of a young person who's in their mid-20s who, before they blink, they'll wake up and they'll be 50 and they'll, they'll not know where the time went. God, would you seize their hearts? Would you move upon them like you moved upon Nehemiah years ago? And would you capture their heart for something greater than just their own life? God, if there's somebody in here that's older and they kind of feel this regret, like, oh, I've wasted it. God, would you let them realize that now you're tugging on their heart and and you may want to use them strategically to pour out their wisdom and their, their mistakes to a young person so that that cycle gets broken in their life. God, would you do that? Would you encourage? Would you, would you, would you clarify and would you crystallize in our hearts what our mission is as a group of people who are struggling to do life together and then would you clarify for us as individuals what our mission is as a person who's part of a bigger community what it is Lord if there's a person in this room who doesn't know you would you even though we haven't explicitly talked about what Jesus did would you would you by your Holy Spirit show them that living for yourself and treating God as merely a a technique or a way or a, a means to having a better life is really missing the mark. But in reality, God, you're calling us to give our lives in response to you. And the only way we can do that is by being made right with you and by recognizing that we are separated from you. Just like Israel was separated from you because of their sin and you reached out and restored them, you have restored us through Jesus and all those that would believe in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and turn in repentance and trust towards Him alone will receive restoration and life and will begin this process of living for something greater than themselves. 
God, would you, would you put that longing in the heart of somebody who may not have experienced that in here today and would they respond by believing in Jesus alone for their salvation and by trusting and turning from their self-reliance and trusting in you. God, would you help them do that today? That is a miracle. That is only a work of the Holy Spirit. Would you move upon that heart? And God, for the rest of us that have done that, would you clarify, would you, would you drop the anchor of mission deep within the waters of our heart? And would you help young men, young women, old men, old women, and everybody in between draw battle lines in their life and resolve to say, this is who I am, this is what I'm about, this is the group of people that I'm running with, and this is what we're doing. Building a church saturated with the glory of God, filled and censored on the scriptures, and crazy about Jesus because people don't need religion, they need Jesus in this city. And so would you do that in us? Would you give us a special grace? And then would you do things for us? Would you, would you move upon the hearts of people to just show us favor? Because we need a building. We need a staff. We need a place. We need all these things. But God, you'll do that for us just like you did it for Nehemiah. Help us just be saturated in our love for you and your mission. And then you'll take care of the stuff like you took care of Nehemiah. God, but sink the anchor of the mission deep within our hearts. Draw the battle line. Draw the battle line. Lord, let us respond. In Jesus' name, amen.